0: Listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Take a minute. Share the broadcast. We're gonna jump in. Um and if you wanna know what we're really, really talking about today, um, I'm gonna, I may do several broadcasts on this topic and, um, and then put them together in kind of a playlist. I don't, I don't know that I'll do them back to back to back, but there are multiple things really to talk about when it comes to this subject of the Trinity. Um, but the thing that I wanna to address today, for those of you that are watching, uh, in just a moment we're gonna jump in is there is a, um, a belief system amongst Pentecostal Christians, uh, what we would call apostolic Pentecostal, uh, that there is no Trinity, that there's only Jesus. There is no Trinity. There's only Jesus. And I have friends that are apostolic Pentecostals. Uh, I've preached in apostolic Pentecostal churches and, um, This is the the commonly held doctrinal belief amongst Pentecostal apostolic believers is that there's only Jesus. There is no Trinity. There is no three in one. Uh, That's another way to say it, Pierre, is oneness Pentecostals. Oneness meaning there's one God and it's uh, Jesus. Jesus is God, that there's no Father, there's no Holy Spirit that's different. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And so um, we're going to discuss that today. I'm actually going to give you seven thoughts that will help you and uh, seven things that will really uh, open your eyes in in this area. And again, this is not to vilify those that believe this way, uh, but it does need to be taught. The Trinity uh, is a part of Orthodox Christianity. (laughs) You know, it it is a part of of doctrine. And so I want to tell you why, give you seven things to chew on today that will help you And, um, and then there's a couple of other things that I want to deal with, um, on the subject of the Trinity, obviously I've had probably three or four, um, I've probably had three or four victory tribe members ask me, uh, to cover the topic of the Trinity, whether in the comments or in person, I can think of at least four off the top of my head. So I'm finally getting around to dealing with it. Zach Wilson said, seriously, I don't know that I've literally ever heard this. Uh, only God, the father I've heard, but not only Jesus. Yeah, Zach, that's a, this is a huge belief uh, in Pentecostal Christianity uh, in that sect, which would be apostolics. That would be like the United Pentecostal church, the UPC. They are Jesus only meaning uh, not only do they just baptize people in Jesus name only, but they believe Jesus is it. Um, Jesus is God and Jesus is the only entity uh that there is there's not three individuals it's just jesus and we're going to deal with that today um so obviously within judaism you know if you're a jew um you believe there is one god and that's you know they they use that old testament scripture there's one god and um and so they would look at this they would look at this thought process as heretical because um whether you're a jew A Muslim, uh, Oneness Pentecostal, um, any of these um, different religions, I mean you think, uh, not to say that Oneness Pentecostal is a different religion, I'm talking about Muslims, Judaism, they would look at what we believe and call it polytheism, that we believe in many gods or multiple gods. But the Trinity is not a teaching of polytheism. It's not a teaching of polytheism. We still affirm what the Bible says that there is one God. Thank you, Luenda, that there is one God, the uh, yes, and AJ's putting the reference up, Deuteronomy 6:4, that there is one God. but uh, we're not claiming, we're not claiming that there's more than one God. We're claiming that there is one God who reveals himself to us in three different persons. That's what we're claiming and I know that might sound like semantics to you that are just logging on and say, well, you're still saying there's three gods. We're not saying there's three gods. We're saying that there's one God who reveals himself to his people, uh, in three persons. And, uh, and so we're going to explain that today and I'll show it to you from the new Testament. I'm going to show you why we believe. And these are seven different thoughts to chew on. And of course, as Pastor David Rensel is putting there in the comments as well, Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, the Lord your God is one God. And of course, that's why Judaism uh, would claim that the, uh, the belief of the Trinity is uh, polytheism. Same with m- Muslims. You know, they, they say the same thing. They say the exact same thing. And of course, uh, those in the sect of Pentecostal Christianity, Apostolic Christianity, United Pentecostal Church, Oneness Pentecostals, would basically say the same thing that there is one god but it is one god it is jesus christ he is god and of course i believe jesus christ is god i just did a uh uh, a broadcast on this what was it like middle of last week tiff we did that uh dealing with the fact that jesus is god or was it friday but we basically dealt with two two things the deity of christ and we dealt with it was the three beliefs that you have to have as a uh, a christian uh, the non-negotiable Christian beliefs. Number one, Jesus is God. You have to believe that the Bible teaches it. You can't be saved without believing that number two, that he was resurrected from the dead, raised from the dead. And number three, that the Bible is God's inerrant inspired word. You can't negotiate those three beliefs. If you're a Christian or else you can't be a Christian. I mean, it's just basic, basic doctrine, but we're going to be talking about this today, demystifying the Trinity a little bit because we've had questions about it. And I do, like I said, I do wanna do a couple of other uh, broadcasts on the subject of the Trinity, uh, because people have a, a very hard time understanding it um, and breaking it down. And so really today, today's broadcast is gonna center around um, the, uh, the thought process of that there's only Jesus um, and that the Trinity is not really a doctrinal belief that you should hold as pastor David Rensel uh, is saying there in the comments, not all believe in Jesus only. There are some that do not all. And of course we understand that doctrine varies from church to church and believer to believer, sadly, but, uh, there is this thought process of Jesus only oneness. Um, so there's some thoughts that I want to break down for you guys today. I'll do some, uh, I will do some announcements at the end. I'm going to jump right into what we're teaching, but I really want to give you seven thoughts um, that will help you in understanding uh, or being able to see um, the three persons of the Trinity or uh, multiple persons, even without the just Jesus viewpoint. Because if you read the New Testament, um, you will clearly see that there are more persons Of the Godhead than just one. You'll see it clearly in the inspired scripture. So I'll give you seven thoughts to chew on. And I want you to, I want you to write these down. You can put them in the, uh, you can put them in the comments section. Um, One of the things we dealt with to uh, the subject of Jesus being God is that number one, and, and this, and this is not number one in the list of seven, but I just want to deal with this first of all. Jesus did not start existing when he was born of a virgin. I mean, this, this is something that's important to understand. Jesus did not start existing um, when he was born of of Mary, born of a virgin. That's not when Jesus began existing. There are actually people who teach that God created Jesus, that Jesus is a created being. In fact, this is what Latter-day Saints believe. Um, this, this is literally what Latter-day Saints believe. They believe that Jesus isn't a, a created being, an exalted being, but that God created Jesus. God didn't create Jesus. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that God created Jesus. In fact, I'm hearing the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one, and I'm gonna read you a few verses. Listen to this, chapter one and verse one. In the beginning was the word. Now this is talking about Jesus. It, it, it's plain as you read the whole chapter in the beginning was the word. Now, one of the things you'll find as you read John one is that John is using verbiage here. That's throwing this. He's referencing, throwing it back to Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same in the beginning, the dateless past, the, the, the eternal past in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus here uh, is referred to obviously as the word who becomes the word made flesh, but he didn't start being Jesus when he was born in the flesh. Uh, He's existed from the beginning with God, the Bible says. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God, with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so I want you to see that. If, if people believe that Jesus was a created being, how do you explain John 1, 3, that nothing was created except through him. Nothing was created except through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And so you understand that Jesus existed since the beginning of time with God, but he also was God. But I'll, I'll break that down in one of the points today, uh, that we will see later on that will really help you to understand this. And I love the verbiage. I love the, uh, the Greek language that was written that the Holy spirit inspired, it really, uh, breaks it down. And I'm going to show you some things you may not have seen before. Probably you probably haven't. Uh, but it'll, it'll open your eyes. Very, very interesting thought on John one, one a little bit later. And so Jesus was not a created being. I don't ever want people to think that, you know, it's like, well, there was God in the old Testament. And then we came into the new testament and god chose to create jesus no jesus was not created for the new testament he was the word that's eternal that came into a flesh body he came into a flesh body he revealed himself as a man in the new testament uh, for the purpose of redemption but it's not that he just started existing he's always been there he's always existed there's nothing in the world or universe that you see that was not created through Jesus, the Bible says, through Jesus Christ. And so he was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is eternal. And of course we believe Jesus is God, but he's also not the same person revealed as God the Father. And he's not the same person revealed as the Holy Spirit of God. There are three persons. It's funny to me that like, we believe that God is omnipotent we believe that he can do anything we believe, except violate his word. He, he can, he can raise the dead. He can cause demons to flee. Uh, he can open blind eyes. He can do the impossible. He just can't reveal himself to us in three persons. I mean, that, that's one of the things that makes me laugh is like, we'll talk about how powerful and all the things he's able to do. And he can do exceeding abundantly and above all you can ask, thinking, uh, you know, whatever you can go through all the verses on God's omnipotence and all the things that he can do except reveal himself to us in three different persons. <laughs> of course he can do that, and he has done it. But I'll, I'll also say this, you, you may not have heard this term, this is not to say that we believe that he was three different people at three different times, right? So one of the things I want you to see, uh, it's not that he became three different people. You know, there's this thought process that you may, may or may not have heard of, it's called modalism that in the Old Testament he was Jehovah, he was God the Father, Yahweh. In the New Testament gospel period he became Jesus. And then after his resurrection and ascension into heaven he became the Holy Spirit and that's who fills the body of Christ. Three persons revealed but he was only ever one at a time. That's not what we believe, that's not what we believe. He has always existed as three persons revealed but still one God revealed in three persons. That's what the Trinity is. God in three persons. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to get into that. Um, you can do a plain reading of the New Testament and see the multiple uh, persons of the Godhead uh, described in scripture plainly. You don't have to read into it. It's funny to me, like when things are plain, people want to mystify them. or or turn them into, and by the way, this violates one of the laws of interpreting scripture. If scripture is plainly stated, unless you can clearly see it's an allegory or poetical in nature, or you can see that it's somehow um, like a parable, it's something that's obviously not, that didn't truly happen. For example, Jesus told parables and we know that they aren't stories that actually happened in history he's telling a parable for the point of teaching a point. One of the ways we know it in parables, Jesus never uses names. He doesn't name the people in the parables, but when Jesus tells a story that truly happened, he'll use names. Like for example, the rich man in Lazarus, that's not a parable. That's a story that Jesus told that actually took place, the rich man in Lazarus. So Unless you can see that something's poetic in nature, it's allegory, it's, you know, for example, we don't believe like Proverbs says that wisdom, uh, although personified in Proverbs as a woman walking in the streets, calling out to people, we don't believe that wisdom is an actual woman somewhere in the universe that we're searching for this woman who is wisdom. No, it's just in that poetic form, uh, you know, the Bible sometimes um, personifies traits as a person, you know, wisdom being one in the Book of Proverbs, and when they find me, you know, long life is in her right hand, and wit, riches, and honor in her left hand. So you understand um, that sometimes things are personified, and you understand them as poetic, you understand them as allegory. But that's it's not how you're supposed to look at them. And say, yeah, wisdom. The Bible says wisdom's a woman, and we're looking for that woman. She's here somewhere. No, we know that when you read scripture, that there are different ways, there are different things that are in scripture that you have to take the form into account. Is it a prophecy? Is it a narrative? Is it a prayer? Is it a command? Is it it poetry? You understand? There's different ways to see the different things in scripture, so one of the things, exactly, and I believe that's one of the questions Chapman John asks: how many will we see in heaven? We'll see, I believe the three persons of the Trinity in heaven. And the Bible actually says in 1 John five, seven, there are three that bear record in heaven, not one, there are three. And so we'll deal with that. Some of that today, I'll give you these seven thoughts. But, um, when we read the Bible, we read it plainly unless there's no way to read it plainly. Right, meaning we read it literally unless there's no way to read it literally, right? For example, um, if we get together in fellowship with each other, um, am I an actual blade and you an actual blade or are we people? Because if you read the book of Proverbs, uh, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. So am I actual iron? Am I actually a blade that you're to sharpen when you come to? No, we know we're not blades. We know we're not iron. We're people. We're made of flesh, bone, and blood. But we understand the principle there that we are to hone each other, that we're to build each other up, that we're to sharpen one another, and we're supposed to encourage one another, see? So unless you can't read something literally, you should read something literally. Do I believe, like for, I'll give you another example. When John the Revelator is on the island of Patmos, exiled, and he turns to see who is speaking to him. Do I believe that he turned and saw actually Jesus? Yes, because he said he did. He said he did. Do I believe it? Yes. Do I believe that he saw Jesus shining in glory? Yes, I do, because he said he did. Do I believe that he saw him with hair that was white like wool? Yes, because he said he did. There's no reason to not believe John when he said he saw the glorified Christ whose hair was white like wool, as white as snow. So you go through these different areas and you can see. So as we read the New Testament and we start to look at some of these things, they're plain. They're plain and there's no reason to not read them plainly. So let me give you seven things to chew on from the new Testament to, uh, to help you see this. There are certain things in the new Testament that help you to see all of the persons of the Trinity in one also sometimes two of the persons at once, just depending on the, on the passage. So let me give them to you. Seven things to chew on. Number one, I'm going to put it in the comment section. Number one. Acts 1038, all three persons of the Trinity listed in one verse of scripture, Acts 1038. Let's read it together. Acts 1038, um, this is obviously uh, the good news that Peter's preaching to the uh, Cornelius' household. It says, how God, there's one, anointed Jesus of Nazareth, that's two, with the Holy Spirit and with power, that's three. So we see all three, and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In Acts 10:38, all three persons of the Trinity are listed in one verse. God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth. When did he anoint them? When did he anoint Him? When he was on the earth in fleshly form. He was the word made flesh, dwelt among us. And then God anointed him with what, with what did God anoint Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And so there you can see in one verse of scripture, uh, all three of the persons mentioned together. Now to say that Jesus is not God is heretical. He is God, but he's not the father. <laughs> he's not the father. So. Jesus himself makes that plain in New Testament when he's talking to people about the Father. He's saying, "Although I and the Father are one in nature," which is what he says, "I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Well, they're one in nature, but that doesn't mean they're the same person because there were things that the Father knew that Jesus did not know. For example, the times and seasons. He said, these are not for you to know. Only my father in heaven knows these things. Only my father in heaven knows these things. So there were some things that Jesus emptied out of himself to become a man, though he was all God and all man at the same time. The kenosis of Christ, the pouring out of Christ. You read that in Philippians chapter two. Let me take you there so you understand what I'm talking about. Philippians chapter two. Christ was in heaven with God since the beginning. He's never not existed and he's never been the same person as God, the father, who we would call Jehovah or Yahweh. It's not the same person. Um, but I want you to see this um, passage here in Philippians chapter two. I know that's why I'm doing a broadcast on it, Nancy. I'm trying to break it. I'm breaking it down. Uh, In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is the kenosis of Christ. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God, the father. So there's two, two listed there, but it's teaching us how Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a man, you see. And so there's a reason that during his earthly ministry, he emptied himself of certain portions of his deity. For example, his omniscience. He didn't know all things when he was a man on the earth. He did that on purpose because he had to live a life of faith in obedience to the father without faith. It's impossible to please God. It doesn't take faith to live. If you know what's going to happen five minutes from now, it doesn't take faith to live. See, and he had to be the prototype man for all men to come to show us. He could be tempted in all points as we are and still prevail. There's a reason he came in the flesh to show what's possible as a man and to take on the form of flesh so that he could take the sins of the world upon himself. Pastor David asks, what's the story with a a spirit? You can't see a spirit with your natural eyes. That's not necessarily true. There were times all throughout the Bible, people saw spirit beings with their natural eyes. How do you think Elisha was able to see uh, the chariots of heaven and the angels come to get Elijah when he went away? They were able to see it. When they took the, through Peter, James, and John went up onto the mountain of transfiguration, they were able to see spirits. You can see spirits. They're not invisible. You can see them. We don't always see them, but you can see them. There's places throughout the entire Bible where people saw angels, saw spirit beings. How do you see, uh, you know, Moses in the cleft of the rock. God went by him and he allowed him to see the back of him. You can see spirit beings. They are, they can be visible. They can be visible. Um, and so as we see this, understand that although Jesus is God, he was, he came in the form of flesh. But here, wow. And this is where you want to see it the most. When he's on the earth, we have example after example of the persons of the Trinity as separate, separate persons, same God, they're one God, but manifested in different persons. So the first one we see is Acts 10, 38, all three in one. God, the father anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost, three people. Now, that's obviously a reference to when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So I want to take you there. Um, Go with me to Luke chapter three. This is going to be number two, Luke chapter three. And I know it's a deep subject to try to tackle in an hour broadcast, but I think you can clearly see these examples uh, in the New Testament that there's no reason to try to go and mystify uh, the things that are plainly written in scripture. There's no reason to mystify them. There's no reason to try to make them say something they don't say in the text for the purpose of creating a doctrine that's not in the Bible. So in Luke chapter three, for example, Jesus comes to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing uh, men and women and says that he needs to be baptized. John doesn't want to do it initially. And then Jesus tells him it must be done. So I want you to see this. Let's look at Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22. Listen to this. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened the heavens were opened. Now look at this. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove would descend. The Bible's not telling us the Holy Spirit's a dove. It said he descended in the same way that a dove would descend. The Holy Spirit, now listen to this, this is powerful. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, didn't come out of Christ's mouth, came out of heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Now here's another portion in scripture where we see all three persons of the Godhead manifested separately. We see them all three manifested at the same time separately. Now here's the question for you because this really becomes a big question. This becomes a big question uh, for those that believe the doctrine of Jesus only or their oneness. This is a big question because if you look at this passage of scripture and say, well, Jesus is the only, he is the only um, God there is just Jesus only. The question about, I have about Luke chapter three verses 21 and 22 is this, if that's true, who remained in heaven, who remained in heaven? Um, Because you have to believe one of two things. Number one, that God who is truly God was still in heaven um, and that Jesus was on the earth in a flesh form, which would mean that he wasn't God in the flesh because God was remaining in heaven which means that you have to deny the deity of Christ. Or even if you said he didn't truly become a God, God until this point when he was anointed with the Holy spirit, that's when he truly took on deity that then you're denying then that he was God from birth. You're denying that he was God from his virgin birth and for 30 years of his life, he was only a man. You'd have to deny, and then in that case, if he was not God in the flesh, then how could he be a sinless being that was able to take the sins of the world upon himself? See, that belief system not only destroys the deity of Christ, it destroys the gospel message. Because if Jesus, and I dealt with this uh, when we were talking about the three non-negotiable beliefs that every Christian has to have, when you deal with the deity of Christ, if you don't believe he's God, if you don't believe he was born of a virgin, if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, if you don't believe that he was born as a sinless individual, then he's not qualified to take the sins of the world upon himself and redeem mankind. See, all of that is part of the gospel message. Born of a virgin is a massive part of the gospel message. Because if he's not born of a virgin, he's born into sin like everybody else. And so then what you're saying is if you don't believe that there are three different persons manifested as one God, then in Luke chapter three, then you're, you're, you're having to argue that Jesus didn't truly become God until this moment. Well, when he received the Holy Spirit. Well, who's the Holy Spirit then? Because if Christ is God in the flesh, in the person, Second person of the Trinity, he's God in the flesh, then what does he need to be anointed for? Question, why does he need to be anointed by anything? He's God. God doesn't need to be anointed. But see, it's this, it's this understanding of the three parts, the three persons that make up one God. And Christ is giving us a uh he is, he's a prototype that's giving us the way or the system God wants men to function. He wants men to not only be redeemed, he wants men to be filled with the Holy Ghost and empowered. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus received the Holy Spirit in baptism after his actual water baptism. And the Bible's very plain about that because in Luke 4, 1, just a couple of verses later, it says, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. So you can clearly see that then that after his baptism, he was baptized in the Holy Ghost and now full of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, you have to understand then that's a separate entity because before that moment, Jesus was not filled with the Holy Spirit or else there'd been no point of God opening up the heavens and sending down the Holy Spirit who came upon him in bodily form. That's what's happening here. And who spoke from heaven? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, God the Father's speaking. God the Father did not come into the flesh and become a man. It was the logos, it was the word who was in the beginning with God, and though he was with God, he was God. And I'm gonna tell you something about that that really blew my mind recently, uh, which I'll give to you uh, in a minute. But this is awesome. You see the baptism in Luke three, and you can see again, all three persons of the Godhead manifested in one passage of scripture. You see the father speaking, you see the Holy Spirit descending, and you see Christ being baptized. You see all three in one passage of scripture. And so we can see that it's not just Jesus. There's other things going on besides just Jesus. You see that? And it's true. Jamie said there, there's a, a big movement going around of people that are coming against the Trinity, and it's true. As I taught yesterday, there are, you know, people that are trying to deny uh, what the Bible teaches, we know that. We know that it will happen. But it, we also have to be ready, according to the Apostle Peter, to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We have to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. Let me give you number three. So number one, Acts 10:38, All three persons of the Trinity listed in one verse. Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22. All three persons of the Trinity seen in one passage of Scripture. Now, let me give you number three. Uh, The question that I would ask um, is this, and this is a funny answer that I've gotten from some people. Uh, Number three is the question I'm asking about the Trinity. When Christ was praying, anytime he prayed, who is he praying to? Number three, put it in the comments. Who did Jesus pray to? or I guess the grammatically correct way, to whom did Jesus pray? (laughs) Number three, to whom did Jesus pray? Especially, you look at all these places, Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. He's in the garden. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. To whom is Jesus praying? To whom is he addressing his prayers? Let's look at it, Matthew 26, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 39, the Bible says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, who's his father? Who is Jesus' father? If he's God and he's the only God, then who's his father? I mean, that's a pretty plain question. And you don't have to mystify it. Who is his father? My father. This is verse 39 of Matthew 26. My father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. But as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Is he talking about the same person there? Or is he talking about two different people? You just saw two different wills. You see, so one of the arguments that I've heard back from this, which is, you know, I'm not mock, I'm not being I'm not mocking today, but one of the things I've heard people say about this passage or any passage where Jesus prayed. Is well, when you see Jesus pray, what you're really seeing happen there is that Jesus flesh is praying to his spirit. (laughs) People have told me that Jesus is praying to himself. That's the argument about this, these passages. Well, Jesus was praying to himself. His flesh nature was praying to his spirit nature. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. It's not what's going on here Um, because how do you say I can only, Jesus said this, I can only say what I hear the father say. So the father has to speak. Jesus has to hear it and then he has to speak it. That doesn't take away from his deity and it doesn't take away from Yahweh's deity and it doesn't take away from the Holy Spirit's deity. Three persons and one God, he reveals himself to us in three persons. You see, right? We pray to the father in the name of Jesus. Exactly right, they're not the same person. They're two different people. So understand that um, in in this portion here, it's very interesting to me because we see Jesus was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. And in fact, now this is an interesting thought all the things the disciples saw Jesus do through his whole ministry, they saw his provision, they saw his miracles, signs and wonders, they saw his peace, all of the things they saw him do. The only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them, what did he say? Teach us how to pray. Because they recognized it was Jesus' prayer life that brought about the success of his ministry. And so the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. So the question is because they knew he was a man of prayer. The Bible says that he would often get up early before the dawn, go out into the wilderness, separate himself and pray. Luke chapter six, he prayed through the night. He was a man that would pray for hours at a time. Jesus was a man of prayer, but to whom did he pray? He wasn't praying to himself. Oh me, if it's possible. No, he prayed to the father, who spoke to him at his baptism, who anointed him with the Holy ghost. He prayed to his father that is in heaven, the first person of the Trinity. You see? And so the third thing you need to look at is, ask yourself the question, to whom did Jesus pray? Let me give you number four. Fourth thing we need to look at. Fourth thing we need to look at. Um, who did Stephen see? Acts chapter 7. Question number four. Who did Stephen see? Acts 7. Go there with me. I don't know why anybody f- would feel as though they need to read into this passage. more than it says. And that's exactly what uh, oneness believers have to do when they read this passage. They have to read more into it than is actually here. It's called eisegesis. They have to read their own meaning into the text instead of looking at what the text says and letting it explain itself, exegesis. They have to read their own meaning into what the Bible says. So who did Stephen see? Um, Of course, we know Stephen was stoned after he gave his rebuke. After he was done speaking, let's start with verse 54. After Stephen was done speaking, uh, this is what the Bible says. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, hold on. Here's another passage where we're getting ready to see all three members of the Trinity, all three persons manifested in one passage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, second person of the Trinity, standing at the right hand of God, first person of the Trinity. So he's filled with the third person, gazes up, sees the second person standing at the right hand of the first person of the Trinity, all in one passage. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. And then he sees Jesus standing at the father's right hand. He clearly saw it. He clearly saw it unless you believe the Bible is trying to tell us things that aren't true, or you have to go in and read more into this passage than is here. Because let me explain to you what oneness, uh, believers will tell you about this passage. Acts seven verses 54, uh, through 56, because he even claimed it. Behold, I see heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. He saw it, but, but here's the thing. If you will bring this up to a oneness believer, those that are denying the Trinity, they'll say, well, what this really means is when you see that at the right hand of God, that just means a place of authority. I've heard this argument many, many, many times, many. They'll say what that really means is Jesus was just standing at a place of authority doesn't mean that there was an actual person next to him that he was standing next to who is also God. The right hand of God just means, that phrase means a place of authority because the right hand speaks of authority and Jesus. So Stephen was really saying, I see Jesus standing in a place of authority. That's not what the text says. It's not what the Holy Spirit inspired by any means. It's not what the Greek language says here in this passage. He literally says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father, the same father that opened the heavens and spoke down to Jesus when he was on the earth, the same father that sent the Holy Spirit and anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit in bodily form. So question, let me go back to that one about uh, Jesus baptism real quick, because the Bible says here that. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form in bodily form. So the Holy Spirit was in bodily form when he descended upon Christ. So Christ had a body, the Holy Spirit had a body. And then of course, God's in heaven speaking as well. Three people, we can see it. And, and here, uh, Stephen is seeing it clearly seeing it. I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. All three people filled with the Holy Ghost, sees Jesus, sees the Father. I mean, it's irresponsible. I'll, I'll say it in a very respectful way. It's very irresponsible to read your own meanings like that into the text of the Bible. It's irresponsible. It goes against the laws of hermeneutics, which is just the study of scripture the interpretation of scripture, it goes against the laws of harmony. You don't, you don't read your own doctrines into the Bible. You don't make it say something it doesn't say for the purpose of your own created doctrine. And so, um, it's very clear what was happening with Jesus. It's very clear what was happening with Stephen these things are, are plainly shown to us in the scripture. I'll give you another one. So we've covered Acts ten We've covered Jesus' baptism, who spoke, who descended. We've covered what uh, Stephen saw. We've covered who did Jesus pray to. Let's keep going, let's keep going. Um, this one will really, uh, this one will really really get you. I love this. And this is the one I was waiting to show you. But if we go back to John chapter one, now this one, I'm going to, it's going to take a a little bit of explaining to show you this, but once you see it, it's really amazing. Really amazing. In um, John chapter one, The Bible says this, and we've read the scripture, but I want to read it again and show you this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is so powerful, and I'm going to explain it to you as clearly as possible. In the beginning was the Word. The word was with God, the word was God. When you are reading this verse of scripture in the Greek language, the Greek language doesn't do what the English language does. Meaning, we in the English use word order to understand grammar. So if I were to say to you, um, Ted, through the ball. The subject of that sentence is Ted. The verb is through, and ball or the ball is the direct object. The is the article. I know that's, that's like high school uh, or eighth grade English for people. I used to hate having to do that, where you had to go through the sentences and remember like, this is the noun, this is the adjective, here's the adverb, here, here's the direct object, here's the indirect object. I hated that. But it helps us to see in this, is that when you understand sentence structure, you have the subject that does the verb to the direct object, right? Ted threw the ball. But in the Greek language, word order doesn't even matter doesn't even matter. It's case endings that determine what's a direct object. What is a a subject of this sentence? What is the verb? It's it's case endings. So one of the interesting things when you read John 1, 1 in the original Greek language, a a really weird thing they do is if somebody lists a name, like if you see Peter or Paul or Philip in the Greek the Greeks did a weird thing. They would put an article in front of people's names. So if you read those things in the Greek language, it won't say like, and Paul was walking on the road to Damascus, it would say, and the Paul is walking on the road to Damascus and the Peter stood up and spoke to those on the day of Pentecost. So in the Greek language, they use an article before a name, a proper noun, the Peter, and so. Even with God, it will not just say God, theos, it will say the God, ha-theos, in the Greek language. This is important in this verse, and I'm trying to say it as as clearly as possible so you can can understand this. Um, Martin Luther had an excellent quote about John 1.1, because when you read it um, in the Greek language, it's very cool because the word, logos, is the subject of the sentence, but it's really cool because it also uses the word God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Although God is also another proper noun, it's, it's another person there, it's very cool that in the Greek language, they didn't use the article this time to show you that there are two distinct persons. And uh, Martin Luther said this and it would, it would take a whole broadcast to break this down, but this was his quote about John 1, 1, the lack of the article is against Sebulinism, but word order is against Arianism. So literally when the Holy Spirit inspired John 1, 1, he did it. And this is the way I'll explain it to you without having to teach you Greek and go through these two other beliefs. When the Holy Spirit inspired John 1:1, which was written in the Greek language, he did it in such a way grammatically that it would be clear to anybody that was reading the New Testament. And by the way, that's the reason that it was written in what we call Koine Greek. It was, it was commonplace Greek or what some called marketplace Greek. It wasn't something that just scholars knew it was something that the, the dude running the taco stand on the corner spoke. It was common everyday Greek that everyone spoke marketplace, Greek and the new Testament was written in marketplace, Greek for everybody to understand. And when this was written, the Holy Spirit on purpose wrote it in such a way that the average dude who was not a scholar, was not a man of God, was not a priest, was not a... Anybody that read this would have understand when they read John chapter one and verse one, that the word or Jesus was not the same person as God the Father. It's written even grammatically to show us that they are two separate people functioning in one purpose or functioning in one nature. Two separate people functioning in one nature and it even the, and that blew my mind. When I saw that, that even the grammatics, that the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit even used grammar to show the, the average person of the day that Jesus is God, but he's a separate person manifested than the father. That's, that's mind blowing. And Martin Luther pointed that out because there were heretical belief systems, even in his time. Arianism was big, Sabellianism was big, and he showed that even the Holy Spirit, knowing all things, inspired the Word of God, even, it's amazing, even to refute false teaching and false doctrines that the Holy Spirit knew would rise up within the church and within that time and still to this day. And it's amazing. Even the way the Bible was written, I mean, that's mind blowing even the way the Bible was written was done in such a way to let us know and to let us clearly see that these are not the same person, that they are two separate people. John chapter one. I can tell you this. When I first started getting into John one years ago, you could spend an entire year or more in just the first chapter of John. I mean, literally, you could spend an entire year, there's so much, it's dense. Like, it's dense with revelation, it's dense with doctrine, it's dense with teaching on Christ. I mean, I remember the first time, and you've heard me tell this story, I I said, Lord, I really wanna see more about your word, I really wanna see more about, um, you know, I want you to give me revelation, I want you to, and the Lord spoke to me, he said, what you need to do is begin to pray the same prayers that Paul prayed over the church at Ephesus, what we call the Ephesians prayers. And it was from Ephesians one and Ephesians three. And he said, anywhere that you see him say that you or your, put your name in there. And so I started praying that, Lord, open the eyes of my understanding. Give me a a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Uh, You know, and I, I began to pray it about myself. And the Lord said, before you do your devotions, before you start to study my word, pray and ask that I would open the eyes of your understanding. Pray that I would uh, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of me. Pray that I would show you things you've never seen from my word, that you'd have divine wisdom, the mind of Christ at work. Well, I started doing that. And so when I started doing that, I can remember the very First, yeah, that was in the believer's authority. And of course they taught that to us at Ramah and I started putting it into practice. And I remember still to this day, the very first time that I ever took action on that. And I was still living in Virginia. I went up to my office and I had my Bible out and I had a notebook and a pen and a highlighter and I was ready to get a word from the Lord. And I started, I said, I know what he told me, I'm going to do it. And so I prayed. And I said, Oh Lord, open the eyes of my understanding. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Uh, I just went on I, and I began to pray the Ephesians prayers over myself. Well, I had given myself like an hour set aside that day for study of the Bible. And um, my plan was, I like to go in with a plan. My plan was to read through John chapter one through John chapter 10. I was going to do 10 chapters in an hour. I figured you could read a chapter in six minutes. And so um, I went in and um, I said, I'm gonna read John one through John 10. But then I prayed that prayer. And then I started reading and I had my notebook open. And as I'm reading, I'm like, I mean, I'm seeing stuff I've never seen before, just going through, seeing stuff I've never seen before. And I'm like scribbling notes in my notebook furiously. I'm going page after page turn. I must've taken like 12 pages of notes on that day. And I, I, I happened to look down at my watch to check the time and it was already an hour and like an hour and seven minutes had blown by. And I looked down at my Bible and I'm still in John chapter one still in John chapter one and I'm looking at the thing like, I just took 12 pages of notes and I haven't even left the first chapter of John yet. There was all of that coming out of the word into my spirit by revelation of the Holy Spirit by just opening, asking him to open the eyes of my understanding, giving me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And you begin to see things that you've never seen before. Things you've never seen before that blow your mind. Well, that's because it's so dense. The word of God can never be exhausted. I want you to put this in the comments today. You cannot exhaust the word of God. You cannot exhaust the word of God. Pop that in. Pop that into the the comment section. You cannot exhaust the word of God. Hmm, it's powerful, man. There's, there's so much, there's so much in God's word. I want you to go with me to first John chapter five. There's so much in God's word, man. I mean, it'll blow your mind. <clears throat> Put it in, that's it. Put it in the comments. You cannot exhaust God's word. We're going to go to 1 John 5. And uh, I'm going to show you this passage here. 1 John 5, 7 and 8, the Bible says, 1 John 5, 7 and 8, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. You see that? 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. Now, to be fair, and this is something I could do a whole broadcast on, I will not, because uh, I'm not gonna get into it today because it's deep, it's very deep. But um, that verse appeared in the King James Version, 1 John 5, 7, as we know it, If you grew up in church with the King James, Um, but that verse does not appear in the original language of the Greek, the Greek manuscripts that was added later to substantiate the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't need it to substantiate the doctrine of the Trinity. Look at what the ESV says. Look how different the ESV is from that verse seven, for there are three that testify. That's all it says. And then verse eight, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so there's something called the Kama Yohaniam, uh, which there's huge, there are whole books written about that. I won't get into it today. But to be fair, and I will be fair on this point, the what I just read from the King James Version of the New King James Version, is not found in the original Greek language of the New Testament. It was added later for those that were back when the Trinity was taking a massive, massive hit from people that were coming against it. Uh, there were scholars that uh, put this in. It's not in all the manuscripts. It's only in a few, and they're late-date manuscripts. And almost all Bible scholars agree now, which is why it's not in later versions, newer versions like the ESV and others. Uh, almost all Bible scholars, incru- including F.F. Bruce, Bruce Metzger, uh, all those, those that were like serious, transmission, translation, Bible scholars agree that it was not something originally put in the text by uh, the apostles. but in what does occur is this, there are three that testify. (laughs) There are three that testify. It doesn't say there's one that testifies. It says there's three, (laughs) not one, three. And so it doesn't really matter where you look in the new Testament. 1 John 5, 7 included, uh, it's pretty clear in all of these different verses that there are multiple persons at work, multiple persons at work, three that we see, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, the Father, Christ Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is on the cross, I'll give you another one to think about. I've given you six. I'll give you this. This can be seven. I I could give you more, but I want you to think about this. When Jesus is on the cross, what does he say in the last moments of his life on the earth? What does he say? He looks up into heaven, a couple of things. Once again, he starts talking to the father. Now he's already God. Who's he talking to? But once again, he's talking to his father and he says, uh, my father, my father, Why have you forsaken me? Now, this is an interesting passage because what does that even mean? If you believe in the oneness doctrine, people may not have thought about this one, but it's important to think about my father. Why have you forsaken me? So stop right there to forsake, to leave right? Does that mean that Jesus ceased being God on the cross? No, no, it does not. Doesn't mean that Jesus ceased being God, but if there's no one else other than him, then who forsook him? And what does it mean for him on the cross? Because if there is nobody else, but Christ, and he says, my father, why have you forsaken me? So the, the, to turn his back, turned his back on Christ, does that mean that in the moment he stopped becoming God or, or, or stopped being God? What did he become? See, if you don't understand the Trinity, there's, there's important parts of redemption that you cannot explain or understand. So he doesn't just say, my father, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to say. And I could deal with that, Father forgive them, they don't know what they do, but let's go further. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Think there, Father, into your hands. So, okay, you would have to then, once again, read a bunch of weird stuff into the Bible to make that verse mean something else other than what it actually says for after I get i'm gonna, I'm getting ready to give up the ghost I'm getting ready to give up the ghost and i'm going to give my spirit into the hands of the father what You'd have to read well, what that really means is that his spirit is going to become like what do you say that means? His spirit is going to be then empowered, His spirit is going to step into a place of authority, His spirit is going to be, I mean you have to start reading things in. instead of just literally reading the text, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Luke 23 let's look at it. Luke 23 and verse 46. Listen to it. After he says, father, forgive them. After he tells the thief today, you'll be with me in paradise. He goes on to say verse 46. And I love this part while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's a powerful moment. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So, so catch that today. Very plain. Who was he committing his spirit to? If he's God, who's he talking to? And where's his, who's his, who's he giving his spirit over to? (laughs) You see what I mean? There are so many places in the new Testament text and someone, I believe it was pastor David asked earlier, uh, so why didn't the Jews believe this in the old Testament? Well, see, we don't believe the, the main, the main difference between Judaism and Christianity is we Don't look at the Old Testament as the only word of God. We don't look at the Old Testament as the only word of God. For Protestant believers, the New Testament is the word of God just as much as the old. And you can't separate them and say that they don't go together. They go together. Uh, One of the famous phrases that we've, we've known, if I can remember it verbatim, I will say it and you guys can put it in the comments. The old Testament is the new concealed and the new Testament is the old revealed. Put that in the comments section. The old Testament is the new concealed and the new Testament is the old revealed So all of those things, like, for example, um, the Messiah spoken of many times in the Old Testament, Messianic prophecy, Messianic prophecy. There's over 270 prophecies and ramifications for the Messiah in the Old Testament, 270. All of them came to pass about Jesus Christ. So when you read Isaiah 53, when you read about the Messiah, Who's that speaking of? It's not speaking of God the Father. It's not spe- In fact, if you haven't watched this, you should go watch on YouTube, Dr. John MacArthur, sit down and explain to Ben Shapiro, Isaiah 53. Dr. John MacArthur, a Protestant pastor, explaining to Orthodox Jew, Ben Shapiro, Isaiah 53, and how the Messiah could be no one else other than Jesus Christ. Powerful. I cried, and I'm not even a crier. I cried during that video. That's how powerful it was. The Old Testament is the new concealed, and the New Testament is the old revealed. And so, you look at the the Messiah. The Messiah is not God the Father. And again, it was the. Just search John MacArthur Ben Shapiro Leslie, and you'll find it. John MacArthur Ben Shapiro, and you'll see. Uh, the video where he explains Isaiah 53, I believe they've actually clipped that out so that you can watch just that part. Powerful, powerful. The Old Testament is the new concealed, the New Testament is the old revealed. And so they work together. My, My Christianity is not based on what Jews believe. They don't believe Christ is the Messiah. They don't believe the New Testament is God's word. But I don't believe that the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament was God the Father. It's not God the Father. But again, I'm not saying there's not one God. Because the Bible teaches that there is one God. We quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6. We believe there's one God. We just believe that he reveals himself in three persons. I'll give you an example, I think, if Pastor David's still on. uh, One of the things that we can see in the Old Testament. We can clearly see the the Holy Spirit in activation. We we see that. The Bible says when God was choosing people to build the temple, who did he he, uh, anoint? Um, Bezalel. The Bible says Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Old Testament. Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. Now he wasn't filled with God the Father. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Old Testament. The Jews wrote that and the Jews kept it by the table in the temple. Bezalel, filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, that's the third person of the Trinity. I mean, do you think that the Jews believe that God, the father filled Bezalel? I can't speak to that. I'm not a Jewish scholar and I don't, I honestly don't know what the rabbis would teach in regards to that, but you can see the Holy spirit at work in the old Testament. And I believe if you study, you can actually see appearances of Christ in the old Testament. Who did Joshua, who did Joshua see the commander of the Lord's army? If not Jesus Christ, you go read that one. Who did Joshua see the commander of the Lord's army if not Jesus Christ? Because the Bible tells us who Jesus is. He's the Lord of hosts. Newer translations, he's the Lord of heaven's armies. He's the commander of heaven's armies, Christ is. Joshua had an encounter with the commander of the Lord's armies in the Old Testament. I believe it was a pre-incarnate Christ. You could make a strong argument Now, I'm not not saying that this is, I never preach this as, I never preach or teach this as, uh, you know, dogmatically as doctrine, but you could make a strong, strong argument that Melchizedek was uh, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You could make a strong argument for that, strong argument. Not everybody believes that, but you could do it based on what it says and based on what it says that he did for Abraham and based on what Abraham did for him. And who is this man, Melchizedek, that's called King of Righteousness, King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Who is this, whose name means King of Righteousness, who was the King of Peace, who was a priest unto God before the priesthood even existed. There was no law of Moses. There was no Levitical priesthood. There was no tribe of Levi. So who is this priest and where did he come from and how does he have no beginning and have no end? And how if Abraham is God's covenant man on the earth, how, because Hebrews explains this, that the lesser can never bless the greater. It's always the greater that blesses the lesser. Hebrews explains that and says that he blessed Abraham. What authority? Did this man who has no beginning, who has no end, who's the king of righteousness, how did he have the authority to bless God's covenant man? Who was he? Because you you start to see, you put all the pieces together. You could make a strong argument that that was Jesus Christ, king of righteousness, king of peace. You could make a strong argument for it. In fact, Hebrews uses Melchizedek as a a type of Christ to compare Christ to Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. But there are portions of the Old Testament where you you could see and wonder who was being seen by God's people. Who do you think was talking to Moses in the burning bush? The word of God was in the bush and the word was on fire. The word was fire. The bush wasn't on fire. The word itself was fire. And Jeremiah heard multiple times from God that he said, your word is like fire shut up in my bones. God said to Jeremiah, I'll put my word in your mouth. It will be like fire and I will make the people dry wood. When Elijah talked to God in heaven and God talked back, the fire came down. The word of God is the fire of God. I believe it wasn't God, the father speaking to Moses in the bush. I believe it was a pre-incarnate Christ giving the word to Moses. You know how I know or, or, or why I believe it so strongly is because the same thing that Jesus, my belief, Jesus, uh, said to Moses in the bush, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? Tell him I am that I am has sent you. Tell him I am that I am has sent you. Okay, now go to the garden when the, when the soldiers come to take Jesus away. They, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. Jesus was identifying himself as the same person that God told Moses to tell Pharaoh was coming. I am that I am. Jesus used the same language in the garden of Gethsemane. Who are you looking for? Jesus. No, I am. And when he said that, that's when they all fell down on their backsides. When he revealed his divine nature in the garden of Gethsemane and said, I am. And they all fell back because he just revealed his divine nature to, to the guards. The same person in the garden was the same one in the bush. That's me. That's my belief not preaching that as doctrine or dogma. I'm just saying it's my belief that who was in the bush was a preincarnate word of God to Moses, amen. And so uh, there's a lot to chew on in this, but the, the Trinity is not some obscure thing. It's, it's taught throughout the New Testament. But I believe you can see pictures of it in the old. You can clearly see God the Father and you can clearly see the Holy Spirit. And my opinion is you can see Uh, examples of Christ in the old. I mean, powerful thoughts. But the reason I say this, so many are, you know, if we don't believe what the Bible teaches, see, here's part of it. And I'm Pentecostal, as you know. But one of the things that's being hammered in our generation is this message of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and here's really the, the, the problem. And I'm going to pray for you here at the end of the broadcast. And here's why this is why this is important today. Let me bring it now to the practical. I've shown you the, the study part of it, but let me bring it to the practical. The reason why this, uh, is so important is because in our day and age, There are so many churches, pastors and believers who want to teach us that either the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a real thing, they're cessationists, or they want to teach us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit's not for everybody or that it's not important, period. And one of the arguments that they will use. Now, oneness Pentecostals don't do this because they believe in being baptized in the Holy Ghost. They believe in speaking in tongues. But one of the arguments that they will use about this is that uh, there is no need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because uh, at salvation, every believer not only receives Christ but they received the Holy Spirit at salvation. Well, that's true. That is true. For example, when Jesus was resurrected, said to his apostles and breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Well, they didn't get baptized in the Holy Ghost at that moment, they got saved at that moment. They got saved at that moment. They had to wait till the day of Pentecost to be baptized in the Holy Ghost and receive power from heaven. When Philip preached to Samaria, in Samaria, and the whole city was saved, they got saved. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but he still called for Peter and John to come from Jerusalem to Samaria. What was the purpose of them coming? So that they could lay their hands on all the new believers and get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see what I mean? And so there is a subsequent experience of being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Speaking in tongues is for today. The gifts of the spirit are for today. They've not ceased in their operation. God didn't stop what he was doing on the day of Pentecost because the last original apostle died. None of that is is in scripture. None of that is in scripture. We don't even see those examples in the early church. They were still, they were still having Miracles, signs, wonders, demons cast out in the early church. If you read the writings of Irenaeus and Polycarp and, you know, Athanasius, and you can go back and read, they were still seeing people, uh, changed by the power of God in supernatural ways with signs, wonders, and miracles. And so it didn't stop because the last original apostle died. In fact, John, the revelator was the last apostle of the lamb to die. And his disciple Polycarp writes about things that were happening after his death. So understand this. They were still seeing the power of God in manifestation. It's not gone. It's not over. It's for today. It's for today. And to say that we don't need the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. To say that they don't need where someone's asking on on YouTube, where do they base their saying that there's no Holy Ghost today? They'll go to 1 uh, Corinthians and and use that verse of scripture that says tongues will cease and miracles will cease and all these things. They'll use that to say, well, they've ceased, but that's obviously talking about when we get to heaven. You won't need to talk in tongues when we get to heaven. You won't need miracles, signs, and wonders when we get to heaven, but still today, we need them. Still today, we need them. And right uh, scroll up to that. I'd like to see that resource. Tyler, Pastor Tyler was putting there's Dr. Michael Heiser Uh, makes a case for Trinitarian thought in the Old Testament Judaism, copy and paste that onto a document for me. I'll go look that up and, uh, and use that resource. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate it. I always love, like looking at that, at new stuff, but now understand this. There's never been more important time to understand the function of the Trinity in our own lives. This stuff's not just doctrine. This is, this right here is practicality for the everyday believer. It's not just sit, sitting around, sit, talking about the fact that there's three persons in the Trinity. It's the fact that all three play a part in our lives as believers, that God, the father, he is still Yahweh. He's still Jehovah. He's Jehovah Jirah. He's Jehovah Rapha. He's Jehovah Sitkanu. He's Jehovah Nisi. He's Jehovah Shalom. He's still God. He's still God. Jehovah, he sits upon the throne. There's no God like unto our God. Jesus Christ, still at work today. He's preparing a place for you. He's making intercession for you. His blood is an ever present sacrifice in the presence of God and it speaks for you today. The blood of Jesus is eternal and it speaks for you and to you today. And the Holy Spirit given to the church For these final hours of time, that Pentecostal experience that we can see via the book of Acts was God's design and his desire for every new believer that came into the body of Christ. We don't just see it through the narrative of the book of Acts, but we see it in the great commission of Jesus Christ to his disciples. He said, go into all the world preach the gospel to every creature. Those that believe and are baptized will be saved. Those that do not believe will be damned. And these signs will follow them that believe. Isn't that what he said? Mark chapter 16. He said, these signs will follow them that believe. Well, what kind of signs? These kinds of signs. The Bible says, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Who is Jesus talking about? When he said that, he's talking about all the people that would be saved when you preach the gospel to the unbeliever. He said, my design for them is they will speak with new tongues. They will cast out devils. You can't make a biblical case for the fact that Jesus desire is not that every believer be filled with the Holy ghost. You can't make a biblical case that it's just God picks and chooses who he wants to be filled with the Holy ghost. The third person of the Trinity is for every believer. It's for every believer and it's God's design. Mark 16 tells us that and the entire narrative of the book of Acts tells us the exact same thing. In Acts chapter two, every single believer who was in the upper room was filled with the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter eight, the Bible says that every single believer that was saved in the city of Samaria was filled with the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached in Cornelius' house, as he was preaching, they weren't just saved, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And the Jews said they received the same thing that we received on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 19, all 12 men who were saved under Paul's ministry were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues and prophesy. Every picture we have of New uh, of New Testament salvation in the book of Acts doesn't just show people being saved, it shows them being filled with the Holy Ghost. And notice, Upper Room, Samaria, Cornelius' house, Acts 19 in Ephesus. There wasn't one time, and probably the best one, uh, the, 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 the best two, I would say, to use as an example, Acts 8 and Acts 19. Did you ever notice that Philip nor Paul asked any of those new believers whether or not they would like to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Did you ever look at that? Philip, they saw the whole city saved and he still called for Peter and John who came and laid their hands on the new believers. They never took a poll and say, hey, which, uh, which of you would be interested in receiving the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues? None of them asked that question. Guess what? When Paul went to Ephesus in Turkey and he found the 12 men and the Bible says he baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ, as soon as he was done, he didn't ask them, now, now that you're saved, would you be interested in being baptized in the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues? He just laid his hands upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy ghost began to prophesy and speak with other tongues. It's God's desire. The apostles knew that's why they did it. It's why they did it. It's why they did it. Paul was filled with the Holy ghost and he said very plainly, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He wanted them to know, I'm not talking bad about speaking in tongues. I'm not forbidding speaking in tongues. I'm not quenching the Holy Spirit. I'm not despising prophecy. I would that all of you speak in tongues. I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul, the apostle filled with the Holy Ghost. He wasn't trying to to minimize the, the manifestations or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was maximizing it. He was focused upon it so much so let me finish with this thought before I pray so much so that, uh, he recognized it when he wrote to the Corinthians and he said in 1 Corinthians two, four, when I came to you, I didn't come with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy ghost so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, because he knew he'd already failed when he went to Athens and got up and tried to be all smart and tried to be all uh, philosophical and tried to use their pedestal to the unknown God, as you know, and tried to get get all philosophical with them, quoting pagan poets and everything else. And nobody got saved. A few believed. Most people said, oh, we'll hear you again. Some said he was crazy. He didn't have a powerful, uh, ministry result because of what he did there by trying to use natural wisdom. So he said, I'm done with that. I'm not going to lean on natural wisdom of men. I'm leaning on the power of God. I'm going to lean on the power of God so that people's faith won't be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of the Holy ghost. And there in lies. The problem today is that people are trying to use everything. Every, people are trying to use everything natural in 2021 trying to deal with spiritual problems with natural solutions. You can't do that. If you wanna have a spiritual solution, has to come from a spiritual source, amen. We need the Holy Ghost. We need the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead, not to just fill us, but to use us, to lead us, to guide us, and to empower us. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, hallelujah. And that's why we need the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to pray for you today. You know what I'm going to pray? I'm going to pray that God gives every one of us a fresh infilling of his mighty Holy Spirit again today. Did you know that you can not only be filled with the Holy Ghost, but the Bible teaches us that you can be refilled with the Holy Ghost? In Acts 2, they were all filled with the Spirit. But the same people in Acts 4 were all filled with the Spirit again when they gathered together to pray. Same people same upper room believers. And they were, and the place shook when they prayed and they all were filled with the Holy ghost. Amen. You can be filled and you can be refilled. And those of you that have not ever been filled with the Holy ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, I'm praying that the Lord does that for you today. And so I want to pray for everybody that's watching me and everybody that's listening on the podcast and ask God to give you either the first time baptize you in the Holy Ghost or to fill you fresh today with the fire of the Holy Spirit, a fresh infilling of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Father, I'm praying today for everybody listening and everybody watching live or on the replay. I pray Lord that from this day that you would fill them new and fresh with your mighty Holy Spirit. Do for us what you did for the believers in Acts chapter four those that prayed after they'd been persecuted and the house shook and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, do that for us today in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I'm praying for all of those watching that have never been baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I pray from this day, receive the Holy Ghost in the mighty name of Jesus. Be filled with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' mighty name. And I thank you, Lord, for it. We give you praise. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. Thank you for using us. Thank you for opening doors. I pray that 2021 would be a year that doors would open to your people like never before. Make us impactful. Let us win souls like we never have. Let us lay our hands on the sick and see them recover. I pray in Jesus' name that you would use us with boldness. Let us step out to do things that before we may have been too timid to do for the kingdom of God, but let us do it to bring glory to God in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you Lord for it. We give you praise in Jesus name. And if you believe it, throw some fire up, throw some hands up in the comments. If you receive that prayer today in Jesus name, if you got baptized in the Holy ghost and began to speak with other tongues, we want to hear your testimony, send it to us. Makes me happy to know God's touching his people. Amen. I receive it too, Lenan. A fresh touch of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord. A fresh touch of the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' wonderful and mighty name. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. That's it. That's it. Throw it in the comments. Listen, I want to encourage you, those watching. It's time, like never before, to get this gospel out. It's time to sow seed by faith. We're giving you an opportunity today to get seed in the ground. Time's short. We don't have time to play games. We are the, let me tell you how I look at you. I look at you, those of you that are with us, the victory tribe, I'll be very honest with you. I look at you as the special forces in the kingdom. What do I mean by that? There are people, the Bible teaches that their hearts are growing cold. There are people that are you know, they're falling away. It's true, and it's Bible prophecy, the apostasy of the church. I don't see you that way. You wouldn't be on here every morning at 10.30 on the dot, logging on, commenting, got your Bible out, got your pad out, got your pen out. You wouldn't be on here listening and watching if you weren't hungry for the great things of God to be manifested on the earth. I see the Victory Tribe as the special forces in the kingdom. You're like David's mighty men. And I believe God's anointed you for a great purpose. And so I'm encouraging you. That's why I, I believe I can go into these, some of these teachings that seem a little deeper, like today was a little deeper than I normally go. But I know you can handle it because I see you as the hungry special forces of the kingdom. You're not like those. Here, here's what I read. When I'm reading in, in first Corinthians and Paul's getting irritated and he's like, can we not move away from the basic teachings of Christ? Can I stop giving you milk? can I give you some meat? You know, Paul was frustrated by that. I don't feel that. I feel that you are the hungry, maturing Christ. And I know we have visitors that come in and new people are being, new people being added all the time. I truly believe that God has anointed you and I to stand together and that God sent you and sent me to you and you to me, that we're connected by the spirit of God. I really believe that we're connected by the spirit of God. If you believe it, Somebody pop it in. We are connected by the spirit of God. I believe that. You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. Look at Botswana logging on right now, people in South Africa logging on, Zambia, Nigeria. We have people watching from all over the world, the UK. If you believe it, we are connected by the spirit of God. And so when you and I have come together by faith, we're accomplishing purpose together. That's what I want you to see. We are accomplishing purpose together. That's why I present the vision to you. That's why I let you know what we're doing, what you're a part of. Seeing this world touched by the power of God. And so today I'm, I'm encouraging you by the power of the Holy Ghost sow a seed of faith. Time is running out. We don't have time to play games. We are moving into the final moments of time. Somebody asked me not long ago, do you think we're in the last days? And I don't think we are. I think we're in the last moments of the last day. I really believe that you can see it in the scripture. You can see it all around the world. And so let me encourage you right now, pray and ask the Lord what he wants you to do to sow that seed today on the screen. You see all the ways you can give. You can see miracleword.com. Um, Elizabeth said, is there a place on your website that you do follow up questions on your teachings? You can literally go to our website and uh, there's a contact page on the website where you can type a question and send it to us. We do receive all of them and uh, we can contact you. You can always send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, um, all the social media networks. You can follow me there. You can send me questions directly and I'm happy to receive them. If you would like to text me or receive text messages from me, you can sign up at miracleword.com forward slash text, miracleword.com forward slash text. And you'll receive text messages directly from me, doesn't come from someone else, comes from me, and you can send me text messages as you sign up. It puts all your contact info and your name into my phone book so that we can stay connected. If you wanna do that, please do it. But those of you that are watching, I'm encouraging you to not only partner with us, but to sow seed by faith, believing that God's going to use us and open doors quickly, and they're already opening. We're now around the world every week and continuing to expand, preaching the gospel all over, 180 plus million homes every week, and uh, it's amazing what God's done in a very short period of time. He's ramping things up, and it's it's mind-blowing, so you can go to miracleword.com. Uh, You can use PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. You can use Zelle if you'd like to do a transfer that way. Hashtag donate on Facebook or Twitter. Sow your seed and believe God. Here's what we're doing to bless you. In the month of March, I'm going to send you Kenneth Hagin's book, The Will of God in Prayer. It's a really, really powerful book on the subject of prayer, and he was a man of prayer. For everybody that's partnering with us in March, I'm going to send you this. Go to MiracleWord.com forward slash offer, fill out the form, and uh, you will get it as well as those that are sewing $1,000 or more, I'm gonna send you the Life Application Study Bible. We just sent a bunch out uh, last week. I sign them, uh, write a message to you, sign your name, sign my name, just to say thanks. It's a great study tool. It's very deep, over 10,000 study notes uh, in one Bible, plus profiles, timelines, maps. It'll help you to see things you've never seen. And uh, you'll love it. I love mine. And I, I, I not only got the hard copy, I got mine on my phone and my iPad as well. Use it all the time. Elizabeth, got yours yesterday. I just signed it and sent it to you. And thank you for standing with us. We love you guys a lot. I'll be back again. Um, I believe I'm gonna get my dad back on the broadcast again this week, a couple of times at least uh, to be back with us. And if you guys have questions, I would like to do a question and answer session with my father on the broadcast so that if people have uh, questions about the supernatural, the gifts, miracle ministry, that we could literally do a broadcast, at least one of questions and answers. And so we'll let you know what days those are going to be, but we're live all the rest of this week, uh, 10 30 AM in the morning. Now listen, we got, we got two revivals in March coming up that I would love to see you guys at. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you guys for sewing. Uh, we're going to be in Crawfords. Is it Crawfordsville? Is that how, Am I saying it right? Crawfordsville, Indiana, that starts on Sunday. This coming Sunday uh, goes through, scheduled through Wednesday. All the details at our website, miracleword.com. And then after that, we're going to be at Lakeside Assembly of God in Shelby Township, Michigan, outside of Detroit for uh, Sunday through Friday. All of that's on the website as well. And then I'm staying over and I'm going to be in Livonia, Michigan, which is also near Detroit, for my friend, Bishop Marlon Reed. Uh, on the Sunday following, which is the 28th of March. So you've got opportunities to come and join us live in March. And I'd love to see you love to see you guys uh, in these revivals. So jump on, figure out which one you can make, jump in a car, jump on a plane, have somebody pull you in a rickshaw, do whatever you can do to get there. If you buy a unicycle, a pogo stick, I don't care how you get there, but I'd love to see you love you guys so very much. Thanks for hanging with us. Don't forget the kids. Easter boxes are up and live on the store. And uh, if you'd like to get one, they're running out. But if you'd like to get one before we run out, you can grab it at shop.miracleword.com. And uh, there's two packages, one with a t-shirt, three options of shirts, and one without. Um, And you can get those, but you have to order them either before they run out or before March 24th to get it in time for Easter. Love you guys so much. Thanks for hanging with me today. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. Be blessed. Later.